You're listening to The Bloodline with LLS. We'll be joined by experts who will help us understand current issues and resources available to those diagnosed with blood cancer. Holidays and, you know, those things are, are, mean so much more now than they did prior to cancer entering our lives. This may potentially be a cure for some patients. We'll also be speaking with patients and caregivers who will share their cancer journey with us to better understand life after diagnosis and let you know you're not alone. Beforehand, my job was to earn a living for my family. My wife said to me, your job now is to live. And that's what I'm doing. I'm living my life the way I want to live it. And I'm really enjoying it. It's a much more fulfilling life. Everything that I knew, I didn't know anymore. That defense mode. We're survivors. Like... But they're probably not the questions that you want answered. So, yeah, writing them down for us is important because of our chemo brain. Let's get started. Welcome to the Bloodline with LLS. I'm Alicia, and I'm Lizette. Thank you so much for joining us on this episode. Today, we will be joined by Patrice Alshadi, an oncology social worker. So, let's jump right in. Patrice, can you tell us and our listeners a little bit about your background and what piqued your interest in in your field? Sure. I'm an oncology social worker, last at the Mayo Clinic in Arizona, have been working with uh, adults with uh, cancer for, I don't know, 15, 20 years or so. My interest in in cancer-related fatigue syndrome popped up pretty naturally in my counseling work with patients. They seemed to be almost immobilized by this condition. I was wanting to talk about their family troubles or their money troubles or their anxiety or depression, and they were just wanting to talk to me about how darn tired they were. And I noticed that really we didn't do much talking about fatigue on the medical team other than to note that people were complaining about it. So I became really curious and started investigating mostly because I wanted to have something to offer these patients I was speaking to. So I started presenting these solutions that were clearly there in the research to my peers on the medical teams, to groups of nurse practitioners and physicians assistants, to physical therapists, to nurses. So it became kind of a mission and passion of mine to talk to patients about it, first figure a paradigm under which to kind of talk to patients about it. And that sort of spread to my docs because I was eternally referring patients to doctors for XYZ related to their fatigue. And I started educating physicians group, nurse practitioner groups, nurses groups. Then I was asked to speak to patient symposiums. Then I developed patient education materials for the Mayo Clinic, including their first actual patient education brochure on the topic of cancer-related fatigue in a library of 10,000 pieces of patient education. The clinic did not have one single thing to give to patients on cancer-related fatigue, which sort of spoke to the idea that it was very much maybe not so much at the moment, but at that time, it was very much kind of under the table. Patients didn't ask about it. Providers didn't talk about it and kind of designed our first patient education course where people could come and learn about their fatigue, got our nursing staff really involved. And lately, I've been educating other oncology social workers about our role in fighting cancer-related fatigue. I think it's an arena in which there's a lot of hope for patients to have a really big impact on their own lives. We deal with all the blood cancers and throughout all of the different diagnoses, we hear how patients are really affected by fatigue. Of course. And I'm really surprised that you know we didn't have more items out there to address fatigue. You know, so as a starter, 
cancer-related fatigue isn't a symptom. It does it a disservice. It does the patient a disservice. It does the medical community a disservice. It's actually a syndrome. You know, a syndrome is a number of symptoms that come together in a particular setting under particular conditions to cause problems. And it's rather surprising what all, and there's actually, you know, we have a diagnostic and statistical manual that's used to sort of explain medical conditions and problems. And in cancer-related fatigue syndrome, is it actually in that, in the ICD-10? And it's got like a list of actual symptoms. And some of them are obvious that you would know, like having less energy and struggling to kind of get things done, but some of them are less obvious. You know, cancer-related fatigue syndrome includes problems like having trouble concentrating, finding sleep is not particularly restorative, having trouble with motivation, having trouble with what we call inertia, a very, very strong sense of being completely like set in cement and unable to move. So memory and concentration problems, uh, incredible short-term memory problems. So it's a syndrome. It's a number of different symptoms that come together to cause problems. It's almost universal. 99% of patients who receive chemotherapy have reported at one point or another in their treatment feeling as though you know they're they're experiencing this type of fatigue is described by patients as more distressing than any any other thing than the nausea of the vomiting or the pain or the worst of the symptoms the, the fatigue is what stops them in their tracks to somebody's quality of life if you feel that yeah. you can't get up and and do you can't move that you were can't doing. think right. can't move or basically immobilized you know a third of cancer survivors report that their fatigue on some level of or another lasts more than 10 years after their treatment is done I know that people think, you know, everyone gets tired and usually we know why we're tired and a good night's sleep will solve the problem for regular fatigue. But for those who are experiencing cancer-related fatigue, what's the difference between the two? How can they identify what's CRF and what's simply fatigue? Right. So fatigue is, you know, we all know fatigue. And actually, actually that knowing of what fatigue is in normal life is part of the problem i'll talk about a little later because the problem boils down to interpretation and perception and how we respond and how we cope based on what we know of our life experience thus far so usually when we're tired what do you do you know you you get a good night's sleep you take a nap you feel restored you feel better as i said cancer related fatigue syndrome is a number of things coming together to cause the symptoms that I just described to you. And it's stuff like a per person's symptom burden, their, their blood counts, fevers, changes in organ function. It's physical function changes, like the fact that the body doesn't want to fall into a normal sleep rhythm. It's other medical issues. A lot of the medicines that we give folks when they have cancer affect things like they have diabetes. It affects their thyroid problems. It affects cardiac problems. Medications play into cancer-related fatigue syndrome. A lot of medicines are sedating, and, and a lot of people on treatment are given a number of these kinds of medicines. Treatment side effects play into cancer-related fatigue syndrome. The diarrhea, the infections, the weight loss, the nausea and vomiting. Psychological stressors, the anxiety, the depression, that plays into cancer-related fatigue syndrome. And nutritional imbalances are huge. You know, the mouth ulcers, when people are getting not enough calories, when their electrolytes are imbalanced. People that I used to work with who had tube feedings. These, so there's about seven or eight kinds of factors that come together and sort of create this biochemical soup. We know that it, it is again, truly biochemical. There's a lot of pro-inflammatory sorts of cells get up and riled up when someone's in cancer treatment, and, and that has a depressing effect on a person's biochemical capacity to function well. 
cancer-related fatigue syndrome is by and large physiological things coming together, whereas normal fatigue is normal fatigue. The two things have nothing to do with each other, essentially. Patrice, another term that we usually hear or see related to cancer-related fatigue or CRF is energy conservation. Would you be able to go into more detail about that? Sure. What I think I'd like to do is kind of give you an ABC of it. So A is all the physiological factors that come together to create the soup in the body that gets it into this state where you've got pro-inflammatory cytokines, they're released by the tumor cells, they're released by normal cells, you've got kind of a sick syndrome in the body, which causes kind of this sense of strong sense of inertia, it screws up sleep, then you've got the nausea, the vomiting, the weight changes, the dehydration, the diarrhea, the fever, the anemia, the pain, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. That's on the biological side. On the psychological side, the person's kind of attacked by trying to figure out what all this physical stuff means, as well as the natural psychological reactions that come with being diagnosed with a blood cancer, you know, grief reactions, anticipatory anxiety, intrusive thoughts, all kinds of just stuff is in your head. You have to do something with that. We have to make some kind of sense out of what we experience. And when we're bombarded like that and feel so bad, we feel like it feels like tiredness, but it's again, this physiological process that doesn't have anything to do with a lack of sleep by and large. So what patients do is we pull what we do as human beings under attack like this is we don't really know what's going on, but we think if we get, if we can serve, if we get rest, if we pull in, if we can serve our physiological resources, our psychological resources, our social resources, if we pull in, we're gonna be able to take a breath and kind of get restored. So we contract, we contract on kind of all levels of our functioning in order to try to get a grip on it. But unfortunately, all that contraction makes the cancer-related fatigue syndrome worse. So when we pull in and we get more sleep, our bodies aren't in need of more sleep. Sleep wasn't the problem. When we pull in and we don't move, we become even more deconditioned because we're not moving. When we isolate because we're too tired to deal with people, we become naturally depressed, which is what you do when you self-isolate. So all the kinds of contraction that we do in order to try to feel better actually contributes to making the problem worse unknowingly to us. We sort of end up in that cycle with our bodies vis-a-vis -vis our coping choices. Again, it's kind of a weird thing. And once I, I could kind of sometimes see the light go on when, when I people kind of understand it isn't about an idea that I didn't have enough sleep last night. I slept 15 hours last night and I feel awful. Well, if I asked you two to go to bed and sleep 15 hours tonight, how do you think you would feel tomorrow? Too much REM sleep is associated by itself with depression. And actually, when you sleep too much, generally it's associated with early death just across the board, across all, all kinds of people. In a really natural and understandable way, the choices people make trying to interpret what's going on with their bodies make things worse. The National Comprehensive Cancer Network sort of laid out through a lot of research, what are the things? So here's the C part. So the B part is patients tend to pull in, they, they don't see other people, they rest, they do a lot more sleeping, they do a lot of sitting around, they're trying to get their energy back, but all of those choices are actually feeding into the, the, the biological problems that are causing the fatigue. There's really four strategies that are known to fight this and known to turn it around. The first and most important one is exercise. 
first and foremost, most important one is exercise. The second one is an, kind of an occupational therapy strategy called energy conservation and activity management. And that's sort of a form of budgeting. It's kind of fun. We'll talk about it in a minute if you want. <laughs> sure. Then sleep hygiene. And then there's education and a little bit of counseling. And the education piece is huge because, again, this is all about how you interpret things. You did mention exercise. I did. And, I did. And, now, <laughs> now my, so, my experience is in more in solid organ tumors. And all the research is indicating that exercise is by far and away the most helpful thing that people can do because what it's doing is it's fighting the deconditioning. If the cancer and the treatment are pumping out pro-inflammatory cytokines, exercise is pumping out anti-inflammatory cytokines. If the cancer and its treatment is, is by its very nature causing muscle wasting, exercise builds muscle. If the cancer and its treatment is causing anemia, exercise builds blood cells. So in you know, if the, if the cancer and its treatment are kind of causing depression, we know exercise is a treatment for depression. So across the board, the exercise across all disciplines of study, both medicine, um, nursing, PT, OT, all, all the researchers have by and large found it's the most helpful thing. Now, my concern for your population is people's blood counts really are what they are. This is not in anybody's imagination. Those are real things. Right. I'd still suggest that exercise is super helpful, but you also have to have good, what we call VO2 max. You have to have a good oxygen exchange in order to get exercise and have it be useful. So I'd certainly still encourage any blood cancer patient who's feeling fatigued to be seen by a physical therapy for a physical therapy evaluation. But I can't exactly speak to what kind and type and nature of exercise would be most helpful because, again, these patients are by nature fighting issues with blood count. And in solid organ tumors, we'd say, you know, get the, your blood counts fixed and, you know, then start your exercise program. These patients, you know, your folks might have a little more trouble trying to get that done. Right. But it still is at the top of the list of everybody's known helpful interventions. Yeah, we do have patients all the time calling in to our telephone web education programs and asking, you know, key opinion leaders, uh, hematologists, oncologists, what they can do for the fatigue. And when the doctor tells them exercise, I think they take a step back because they can't believe that um, exercise would actually help when they feel so tired. It really is. It is a conundrum. But remember, one of the symptoms of cancer-related fatigue is a sense of absolute inertia. You know, when I would counsel, would do fatigue assessments with patients and counsel around this subject, I can see it on their faces. It's like, really? Are you kidding me? That's so right. it's, you first have to be able to buy into the idea that it's a possibility. And so what I will ask any patient is, is what you've done so far helping you? Is the sleeping? Is the sitting? Are the endless Netflix, you know, series trying sure. to get through this treatment? Is the getting rest helping you? Are you feeling better? If right. so, hey, keep doing it. But I have yet to meet anybody that's told me that that's helped them. It becomes, you know, is it, what's the saying about continuing to do the same thing, wanting to get different results? Right. That, what is it? It's, it's Einstein. It's Einstein. not smart yeah. to say that much, you know. Yes, but, yes. And it's sometimes, honestly, um, families can be super helpful in this. And family, I, I literally have met families who are the ones giving the message. You know, I told mom to stop, you know, cooking. I'll take care of that. To go sit down. She needs her rest. There is this huge belief that rest is the magic bullet for getting through cancer treatment. And rest actually is the thing that's going to put you down for the count. 
what you need is the same amount of sleep you needed the month before you ever thought you were sick. If that's seven or eight hours, then that's seven or eight hours. It has not changed the need for sleep. I do have a question. You did mention fatigue assessments, which mm -hmm. I think are very beneficial. Now, I don't hear that from patients that they're all getting a type of fatigue assessment. I can't make assumptions. I just know I developed the practice of doing this in, in my world with my patients because it was an area of interest in my, of mine and I, I felt like the strategies that were known to be useful were things I could talk to people about. It wasn't anything crazy and super high tech. You know, it's, it was how much sleep are you getting? Are you getting some exercise? Get out of the chair. Here's how this kind of works. But it's so important to just open that discussion. Yeah. Patients well, don't even know that they can discuss fatigue or that fatigue is part of yeah. their treatment or something that should be well, you know addressed. that's a that's a super good point because I've seen research on this and this is a two-way street patients don't ask about it because again by and large these are issues of interpretation a patient will often take one of these internal approaches that man this is just the price of the whole situation I got to buck up suck up just deal get through it however I can, or what I'm feeling is so alarming, does this mean I'm dying? And I'm certainly not going to say that because I'm not going to wish that into reality. And maybe I'm being a baby here, but I'm scared beyond description. I don't know that I can make it through this. So I'm just going to shut up and buck up. And, and so that is often either stoicism or fear or the position I would find patients coming from. With the physicians, and again, it depends on the practice and how much some of these NCCN guidelines are filtering down to the medical practices, as in, you know, there's definitely things you can encourage people to do. Doctors, um, they've got so much on their plate, I don't think they're bringing it up. You have a scenario in which the most distressing symptom patients feel across the board is something they are not bringing up because they're either scared or they are feeling the need to just support the doctor and be tough and just deal. And the physicians aren't proactively asking because there's a perception that they're not really sure what to do to treat it because they're giving the medicines that are probably contributing to it and need to. So it's, right. it's, it's sort of like the don't ask, don't tell. Right. And we're trying to encourage patients to have more open communication with their treatment team and that their treatment teams are open to discussions about every part of their treatment journey, including these quality of life issues. And a lot of times that's really what people, it's in the forefront of patients' minds as well as caregivers is these quality of life issues because that's what you're dealing with day in and day out. You may not have a treatment regimen that day, but you still have the effects of the treatment that day. Of course. Just, you know, empowering patients to to talk about fatigue, because you're right. So, you know, well, again, keep in mind and the, the concept of hugely hampered motivation and inertia. The patient themselves might just be saying, oh my God, I can't, you know, deal, just leave me alone. I'm not going to mention anything I don't have to mention because I don't have the energy to mention it. But certainly family members then can be the advocates and know that cancer-related fatigue is definitely something that is on a lot of levels addressable. And they can go into those physician visits with the, the presence of mind to even ask for a physical therapy evaluation. Yeah. Many physical therapists that I met who worked in cancer centers are, are, are really interested in this topic too. I mean, it's in their arena and even being sent for an evaluation. But I can tell you, I met more than one patient who was beyond exhausted with cancer-related fatigue syndrome and looked at me and said, you know, Patrice, I cannot add one more appointment to my schedule. 
I can't do it. I can barely make these. So, you know, I, I would think about it. I think about the young woman I worked with who had been uh, a huge exerciser before she went into treatment and was reporting to me, say, seven out of 10 fatigue, if 10 is the worst you can possibly imagine. We sort of looked at her routine and her day and what she felt she was capable of. And she'd been someone who walked four or five miles a day and what she was capable of was maybe walking around her swimming pool one time. So we talked about walking around that swimming pool one time and then the next week making it maybe two laps and the next week seeing if she could do three. Just starting with where you can start. And if you can't start with a full out physical therapy evaluation, can you start with walking your house and can your spouse or, or other loved one kind of be your coach to get that done and build up from sure. there? Sure. A lot of patients didn't even think that a physical therapist could be part of their treatment team. We did have a virtual lecture on the topic and with a physical therapist. And what we found was most patients really didn't even think to see a physical therapist and they were not referred to a physical therapist. But we really think that it's, it's really beneficial for patients. Yeah. The American Journal of Nursing just year found in a meta study looking, which is studies, looking at lots of studies, that exercise was more effective than pharmaceutical options and should be considered the first wow. line treatment. Wow. It rebuilds the muscle mass. It rebuilds the muscle strength. It normalizes blood counts. It pulls out those anti-inflammatory cytokines. It addresses physiological distress. It addresses oxygen exchange and the capacity of the lungs to kind of get more O2 in. So it addresses almost all of those characteristics I was talking about at the beginning, the factors that cause the fatigue in the first place. So want to talk about something super fun and interesting energy. called energy conservation and activity management? Sure, what is that? Absolutely. <laughs> Yeah, I think this is going to be <laughs> Tell us more. So it's an occupational therapy concept, energy conservation and activity management. And it's kind of like, I would explain it to patients like, we're going to talk about your bank account now and budgeting, fun, fun. So if you used to have 10 coins of energy to get you through your day when life is normal, how many would you say you have now? And I would commonly hear things mm -hmm. like, three, four, two. It's like, okay, so you're walking around with this little purse. We can make it a coach. We can make it whatever you want with your two or three coins of energy. What you have to do is smartly use it because you don't want to run out at 1 p.m. And when people say, you know, oh my God, I did ABC and then I crashed and I hit the wall and I was in bed the rest of the day, that's running out of your coinage. So you kind of manage on a short budget with four specific little strategies. The first one's called planning. You plan for when you do things during the course of the day so that you do the things that are most important to you when your energy is best. If going to see the physical therapist, you have that appointment, you want to make sure to keep it. Try to schedule those appointments at times of day that are good for you, not seven in the morning and not five in the afternoon. If you're someone whose role in your home is to cook meals and you want to continue to try to do that because it's meaningful and it helps you feel normal, maybe you take that meal prep and you break it up and you do some chopping of vegetables at 10 in the morning and you go back and you do something else at two and you go back and you throw it together at five. You, you break up a task over the course of the day into smaller bites. So you're sort of titrating, you're pacing, you know, as if you were doing, uh, you know, some kind of athletic event where, where distance is what matters and not speed. You prioritize. I called it the three Ds, drop, delegate, or defer. 
I was always talking about guys about lawn work. I don't know why that always came up, but it's like lawn work. It's like, dude, what are you doing mowing the lawn? Now, mowing the lawn was, you know, with the thing they did even in the middle of cancer treatment because it helped them feel normal and it helped them sure. continue to feel like, you know, in their role in their family. But for a lot of people, it's grunt work. So it's like, what's in your life that's grunt work? Because remember, that's taking one or two coins of this very limited purse of energy you have. So how can you delegate it to somebody else? How can you defer it until a later time? Or defer it until you have a really good energy time? If you only have three coins in the bag, spend them on things that really, really matter. And the last one is, is a super interesting thing called energy leaks, uh, addressing energy leaks. Energy leaks are things, if you think about that, that bag and it, it maybe it had a little hole in it and over the course of the day, pennies are falling out just randomly that you're not actually trying to spend. They're just falling out because there's a hole in the bag. Energy leaks are things like um, if you've got respiratory difficulties and you're not on oxygen, if your home or workspace is not ergonomically efficient. Maybe I remember working with a pharmacist, and if you think about it, pharmacists have to stand at counters for long periods of time. Just his very action of standing was an energy leak. I encouraged him to talk to his whoever at work about just pulling up a stool so he wasn't draining energy out the bottom just by vis-a-vis -vis the action of standing where he could still talk to patients and counsel patients and do the parts of his job that he loved without having that leak. Pain is an energy leak. Remember, we're talking to one guy once who had had a hip revision or replacement, oh, I don't know, maybe 10 years earlier, and it had never quite been right and it bugged him. He'd been encouraged to use a cane or some other kind of thing to take a little bit of weight off that hip, had never really done it. And as we're going through his fatigue assessment, we're talking about energy leaks. So I discover that you know, he's kind of got this chronic pain. It affects how he stands, how he sits. That is most definitely an energy leak. He's losing pennies out of the bottom of his bag without ever actually spending them in any useful way he'd want to spend them. So energy conservation. I think with folks when their blood counts are low and you know they're in treatment and there's not much they can do about it on some levels, you can always look and see how many coins do I have in my bag? How do I want to spend them? Pacing, planning, prioritizing, and then a de dealing with energy leaks. And a physical therapist can also help with that. I think that's great. I think this would benefit all patients. And I really wish that this was spoken about more often with patients and was a regular part of the conversation with their treatment team. Agreed. Agreed. So, you know, getting folks, including those PTOT professionals and almost any patient's treatment plan can help round out and, and get these kinds of things on board. They're not incredibly complicated and difficult things to understand. You just kind of have to know to think about them. Right. Exactly. And this is very important. This is one of the top issues that we, we get when we ask people. When we just say quality of life and how has that been impacted? The first thing we hear is, well, we have so much fatigue that we can't do any of the things that we would have normally have right. done. So we don't feel normal. Right, right. As I said at the beginning, 99% of patients reported it as the most distressing symptom they have to deal with. So, you know, yeah. sleep, sleep is another big one. Sleep is one of the biggest ones. And as I sort of alluded to, we know from tons of study, people really actually don't need any more sleep than they needed before this all happened. There's nothing in this that is fixed by more sleep. And in fact, 
too much REM sleep, like I said, is linked to depression. And actually, slight REM sleep deprivation, again, in kind of low levels, is actually a form of treatment for depression, kind of constricting people's sleep a little bit. Cancer patients sleep a lot longer. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So in a way, (laughs) without knowing it, when your spouse lovingly sends you to bed for a nap because you're so tired or sends you to bed (laughs) early or encourages you to sleep in. And, you know, a lot of people aren't working while they're in treatment. So they're just like, Sleeping in naturally anyway. I don't have to be anywhere till eight or nine o'clock, maybe if they have an early appointment, but people are going to bed earlier, they're sleeping later. And if you think about it, is that helping your muscle mass? No, you're getting deconditioned. We know 24 hours of bed rest has somebody significantly deconditioned. So Mm. so people sleep for, oh my gosh, sleep is huge. Cancer patients sleep longer and later in the morning. They don't have the responsibilities because they've sort of sidelined a lot of the rest of their life. Some people sleep as a way to escape. I and that that's sure. just yeah. I mean, I've met, worked with plenty of folks who talk to me about your sleep. Well, I take a nap in the morning, get up for a few hours, take a nap in the afternoon. Just sleep all by itself is so debilitating. And then you've got the again, we got the biochemistry of this interferons and the interleukins that are produced by the inflammatory response make people sleepy medications make people drowsy people you know and again that whole choice issue people interpret their fatigue as being fixed by sleep so they sleep more which exacerbates the fatigue fatigue insomnia and depression are really really common things that kind of go together so when i talk to people about sleep and this i did with 100% of patients because it was a problem with pretty much 100% of patients <laughs> i ask about you know what were your sleep habits before your cancer what was your baseline because that's your goal is to get back to your baseline. When do you get up? When do you go to bed? What are your habits before going to bed? You know, that TV watching that you could do when you were working and all and were really tired, you could probably do. But now having the blue screens in the couple of hours before bedtime probably isn't something that your body's going to handle. What keeps you up at night? Is it pain? Is it having to go to the bathroom? Is it worry? And what what's keeping you up or waking you up? And how can we address that? Do you, you know, what time are you going to bed? Uh, again, I kind of try very hard to get people to look at if I was someone who went to bed at 1030 and got up at 630, how can we, how can we work you back that way instead of you're going to bed at 11 and waking up at 11? You know, how can we work you back toward what would for you be a more normal sleep pattern? Those daytime naps are killers, literally. I I try to get people to work their way down to maybe a 30 minute cat nap that you set with an alarm. You know, that you're you're not sleeping more than that. Daytime drowsiness. Daytime drowsiness can be, it's, again, folks are loaded with a lot of medication and a lot of them can cause drowsiness. People will then also use over-the-counter how, how medicines, right. how much alcohol are people using, you know, what about recreational drugs? Stimulants. One of the common treatments medicinally for for fatigue is something like Ritalin, but what is the effect of that on someone's nighttime sleep or how much caffeine are they doing? You know, again, something something that could have worked for you when you were well and active, you may want to look at in this period of time. And what are the attitudes towards sleep? And again, what I would mostly get, or what I got a whole lot of is, again, I'm, you're hit by that wall of inertia. I feel like a lump of lead. I can't think. Mm-hmm. This doesn't really make sense to me. I cannot imagine as bad as I feel now and I'm sleeping 11 hours, you're asking me to sleep seven or eight. I have no idea how on earth that's going to help me. Um, and I've got, you know, a wife who's sending me to bed and a mom who's sending me to bed or a husband who's <laughs> right. sending me to bed to get better. And, uh, and 
it's no bueno. It's really, it's not good. <laughs> it's not good. Try to limit your total daytime, your total in bedtime, day and night, because we add these hours up together. So you tell me you're in bed seven at night and I, and I find out you're in bed two in the afternoon. We're, we're adding those two things up. Um, limit your naps. Like I said, 20, 30 minutes, much more than that. You're going to get into a REM cycle and too much REM sleep's not good. Come more physically active as much as you can, whatever that looks like. If that's one lap around your pool, walk in. You know, if that's one lap down your hallway, whatever it is you can do. Practice an evening relaxation ritual. If you find that anxious thoughts, they do tend to come out at night when it's quiet and people don't have the distractions of other stuff. In all seriousness, it is a time when worry about dying comes up a lot. Am I ever going to get through this? What's going to happen? What's going to happen to my family? People tend to worry at night. I think we all do normally, but you put yourself in this pressure cooker and it's pretty bad. What can be put on board in your life medicine-wise to help you either to be able to turn the brain off a little bit or to address anxiety if it's something that's also hitting you in the daytime? Because you have to try to be able to sleep at night in, in a healthy way. Getting those consistent waking and sleeping times, addressing things like pain and hot flashes, having to go to the bathroom at night so that, you know, if you can get to sleep, you can stay asleep. Because a common thing I'd see is people who awaken three, four, five, six times a night and they're napping a lot during the day, but the whole sleep rhythm is really messed up, you know? Right. And basic sleep hygiene information is stuff that almost any medical practice should have on board to share, as well as energy conservation techniques. You can even just Google energy conservation techniques when you're sick. You probably come up with a lot of good ideas. I know that a lot of our patients tend not to bring up sleep as an issue, even if they do have sleep issues, because they're taking medications and they find themselves doing well with these medications. And they're scared that if they tell their treatment team that, you know, they're not resting well, they're not getting good sleep, they're too fatigued, that the medication will be taken away. What kind of medicines are you thinking of? What, um, what is it some, the medicines are doing? Well, there's a lot of um, our folks that are on oral medications that are actually keeping their type of blood cancer at bay. These are newer medications. They are oral. And when they go to the doctor, a lot of time is spent on just going over their blood counts. As you mentioned before, you know, this is part of what our blood cancer patients are going through is getting their results of their blood counts right. um, and their tests. And they're doing well in that respect, but then they're not bringing up any quality of life issues. They're not bringing up the fatigue. They're not bringing up uh, sleep issues because the doctor's saying, oh, you're doing well with your blood right. count. Okay, so I hear what you're saying. So what I also think is possible there is a possible one plus one equals three. Remember, so what I hear is an assumption that I'm on this medicine, therefore the medicine itself is the thing that's causing me all these quality of life issues, one plus one. Mm. What if you have the medicine on board that you have that keeps your blood count at a good place, but you still go see a physical therapist for an exercise regime that you can manage? You still talk to that same PT about energy conservation strategies. You still look at how much sleep am I actually getting? Because I'm gonna bet you that you know, if these people don't are having enough sleep, then there's nothing saying you can't address nighttime pain, nighttime anxiety, any of those other kinds of things. I wouldn't see a reason to have to stop a treatment medicine, it's just adding something else on board to help. I'm not sure 
personally that I would see this, I think there, again, interpretation is everything. And what I hear you saying is people are interpreting. Again, it's that I just have to buck up and suck up because right, this, right. Is par- this is part of the gig. And I'd say I don't think it's part of the gig per se. I think it's certainly there is a physiological soup that's in there. But the things you're choosing to do and the way you're choosing to live thinking you're helping yourself might be working in the opposite direction. And what would it be like to still be on your medicine, but try some different lifestyle strategies? Sure. And I'm so glad that you're on with us because you're really bringing this issue to the forefront that is an important issue. People don't look at fatigue sometimes as part of their treatment and it can be addressed. People, you know, should be talking to their social workers. People should be talking to uh, their physicians. Um, We have heard of patients that have talked to other patients and have discovered that there's a possibility of taking their medication in a different way that Mm -hmm. will actually help them during the day be less fatigued and actually get better sleep. Yeah, if you're um, taking us, if you just, have to take yeah. a sedating medicine and you have to take it once a day, there's a logic as to when you might want to take it. You know, you take right. it before you go to bed. And, and A, it can help you sleep, and B, it's not giving you. But again, I really do want to throw in those other pieces. Uh, you know, to really holistically look at fatigue, we want to look at what are people doing to fight the muscle wasting and the muscle loss and the loss of mm-hmm. respiratory capacity from the deconditioning. We have to fight the deconditioning. We need to work energy conservation strategies so that whatever energy you have is being put toward A, building more through exercise, and B, focusing on the things that really make you happy. And then looking at your sleep really long and hard. How can you get it as close back to normal as you can? And some of that Mm -hmm. is just it took you a while to get to a place of really messed up sleep. It might take you a while to get back. Trusting the process that maybe setting, I've actually encouraged people who were routinely now sleeping until 10 because they're off work and super fatigued, just set the alarm 15 minutes earlier. If you need to do it for a whole week, 15 minutes earlier, then the whole next week, 15 minutes earlier, it took you a while to get to where you're at. Mm -hmm. Just work it backwards. Just try it. Small changes, but small changes may consistently make a difference. Definitely. And again, I want to thank you so much for bringing this to the forefront. Is there anything that you feel that we haven't covered today that... Um, You just want patients to know about fatigue? Well, I'd say cut yourself some slack in that if you feel completely demotivated and unable to do anything, that makes really good sense. That's your body working this syndrome. It's really, really normal. But if you can think of whatever one small change you can make to make it, again, I just asked one last time, is what you've been doing working? And if the answer is no, then let's try something a little different starting with seeing what you can do to get your body a little bit stronger, moving a little bit more. And for families, I'd say try to really, try to be coaches in this department. It might feel a little bit like tough love because because your mm-hmm. folks look so exhausted and all you really want them to do is go tuck in and take a nap. But if you can kind of absorb the way this syndrome works and the, that's the very, that's not the thing you're going to want to be doing for their well-being. And it, again, it's a little bit of a tough love approach, but when I've been able to get a family member to understand that, they, they're often my best advocate because they're not in the physical and psychological thick of the biochemistry. They're somewhat more objective and, and they can coach toward health. Well, thank you. I think everything that you've said is so important for our patients, for any cancer patient. 
and just to know that uh, there are people like you, Patrice, that really do understand the importance of fatigue and how it plays part in, in people's lives and in people's recovery. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for the chance to share. Thanks for listening to The Bloodline with LLS. We can be found on iTunes and other great podcatchers. You can subscribe at www.thebloodline.org. Be sure to check out our archive section on our website for previous podcasts. Be sure to rate and review us on iTunes. Keep up with LLS by following us on Twitter at LLSUSA and Facebook at the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. Until next time.